Uh, well, friends, I reckon one of the telltale signs of getting old uh, are the kind of presents you end up receiving. Uh, you know, whenever it was my birthday, I used to receive things uh, in the past, like uh, technological gadgets or movie tickets or vouchers to uh, uh, fancy restaurants. Uh, you know, all the exciting stuff. But in the last few years... I've noticed that the kind of presents I receive have changed. Now I get pharmaceutical products. <laughs> uh, in the last little while, I've received things like multivitamins, uh, an extra large pack, uh, Chinese medicine, and a whole host of uh, uh, other things that are meant to give me power, physical strength and power in my old age. Uh, you see, as you get older, uh, I think people think uh, you need some help um, and to, to kind of boost your power. Uh, now, friends, uh, we've been looking at uh, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians for a little over a month now. And uh, I want to suggest to you this morning that uh, the part of Ephesians that we're looking at this morning is not about physical power, but about spiritual power. Uh, you will notice at the end of, uh, that, that the end of chapter 3 is really a prayer that the Apostle Paul prays for these Christians around the city of Ephesus. And it's a prayer that asks for spiritual power. Uh, you can see it, for example, in chapter 3, verse 16. If you have your Bibles there, have a look at chapter 3, verse 16, where Paul prays that they will be strengthened with power. Again, in verse 18, uh, he prays that they will have uh, the strength or power to comprehend. And again, in verse 20, he speaks about the power of God that is at work in those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I don't know whether you've noticed, but God's power has actually been a, a huge theme in uh, the book of Ephesians. Uh, in chapter 1, uh, you might remember that Paul has already spoken about the immeasurably great power of God in raising Jesus physically from the dead. Uh, in chapter 2, he has explained that this astonishing power has actually been at work in you believers in, in raising the spiritually dead to life. And uh, uh, here, uh, in this prayer, you will notice that it is precisely because God has already been at work uh, in the life of believe, these believers in, in Ephesus that Paul prays that God will continue to work in their lives and that they will continue to experience the power of God. Uh, friends, if you are a follower of Jesus, uh, you will know as well as I do that it is impossible to live the Christian life relying on our own resources. Is that true? Uh, how often do we fail? How often are we sinful? How often do we lack power and are weak? And yet here, Paul begins to pray that God would powerfully be at work in the lives of these Christians around Ephesus. But what does it look like when God is powerfully at work in your life? What are the telltale signs that God has actually been at work powerfully 
in your life? Uh, these are the kind of questions I think uh, will be useful to have in the back of our minds as we uh, un unpack uh, this passage um, on the way through. Uh, well, let's have a look at uh, this passage in a little bit more detail then. And uh, the first thing I want you to see there is that Paul prays to a very powerful God. Uh, Paul prays to a very powerful God. Uh, now, you can see there in verse 14 that Paul bows his knees in prayer before the one whom he describes as the Father. Uh, one of the great privileges of being part of God's family through Jesus is that we can now call God our Father, isn't it? It's something that is unthinkable to people of every other religion who consider God to be distant and somewhat unknowable. Uh, you may have heard of Bilkus Sheik, uh, who was the wife of a high-ranking uh, government official in Pakistan. Uh, she wrote a, a famous book uh, while living in America uh, many years ago, which spoke of her, her conversion to Christianity. Tellingly, it was titled, I Dared to Call Him Father. I dare to call him Father. You see, becoming a Christian means not knowing God from a distance, but knowing God intimately as our Father in heaven. Not in a way that is light-hearted or um, uh, not reverent, for notice that Paul bows down before this Father in prayer. And so this Father is one who is worthy of our reverence and our respect. However, uh, I want you to see that Paul says two things about this father whom he prays to. Uh, firstly, notice that he says that he is all-powerful. Uh, you can see it there in verse 15 where he describes the father as the one from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Uh, now, I think in the modern world, uh, we name our children simply to distinguish one from the other, don't we? Uh, that's the main function of, of, of naming uh, our children. Um, uh, I mean, I, I named one of my daughters Miriam, and uh, I named the other one Naomi, but it could have easily been the other way around. <laughs> it was just a way of, of distinguishing one from the other. However, in the ancient world, Naming was a lot more significant because it was a way of expressing uh, your authority, your rightful authority, over another person. And so what Paul is saying here is that every family in heaven, uh, every family on earth, is under the rightful authority of the heavenly Father who has created all people and who has created all things. It's talking about his powerful rule over the lives of everyone. And yet, having anyone powerful ruling over you like this can be a scary thing, can't it? Unless, of course, the one who rules over you is also good. And so secondly, Paul goes on to tell us about the goodness of this father whom he prays to. Uh, you can see there in verse 16 that Paul speaks about the riches of his glory. Uh, that's not talking about, you know, silver and gold and uh, wads of cash. 
but he's talking about the richness of God's glorious character, how loving and generous and good he is in his character towards his children. Uh, Now, friends, I know that for some Christian people, it is difficult to think of God as Father. Uh, In fact, I used to go to a church where the people there reasoned that because so many people uh, in our world, in our society, have had such horrible fathers that they had decided not to call God Father at all. Instead, they said you can call God your mother or your brother or your sister. In fact, anything at all. Now, uh, I understand the difficulty. Uh, In fact, it's not inconceivable that some of us have had deeply um, troubled or painful relationships with our own fathers. Perhaps you've had a father who was harsh or absent, or even abusive in your life. But friends, I want to suggest that the answer is not to somehow do away with the fatherhood of God as though we can simply imagine the God that we want for ourselves, but to see that where your earthly father has failed you, God is the father who never fails his children. The great 16th century reformer, John Calvin, once said that it's as though God puts little drops of goodness in earthly fathers, like little drops of water. Even the worst of earthly fathers have had times when they have been good to their children. And yet, he says, the goodness of God is like an ocean. It is inexhaustible, is infinite, it is never-ending. For God is not only the God who is powerful above all things, but he is a God who is good and loving and wise and generous towards those who are his children. But what is it that Paul asks this powerful God to give to these Christians around Ephesus? What is it that he asks for? Well, you'll notice there that he prays for the power of Christ to dwell in their hearts, the power for Christ to be king in their hearts. Uh, You can see it there in verse 17. Uh, Have a look with me at verse 17. Uh, Paul prays there that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Notice that he begins here by praying that the Spirit of God will be at work in the inner being of the Christian person. Uh, The phrase inner being literally means inner person. Uh, You know, the inner person is the real you. It's what's going on on the inside. Uh, It's the things that you think about. It's the things that you are feeling. It's the things that uh, you desire in your heart. It's the things that drive your life. Often the inner person is very different to the outer person, isn't it? 
Uh, it's so easy to live a sham life where you try so hard to make others believe that you are a certain way when in fact inside we are different altogether. But what Paul is saying here is that when the Spirit of God gets to work in a person, he gets to work on the inner person, on the real you, so that there is change. What does it mean for the Spirit of God to be at work in the inner lives of these Christian people around Ephesus? Well, you'll notice there that the work of the Spirit of God is always to highlight the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord and Master over a person. And so that's why Paul goes on to say in verse 17 that the purpose of the work of the Spirit is so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. In other words, the thing that Paul prays for here is that the Spirit of God would so powerfully be at work in these Christian people that they will continue to see and believe that Jesus is King over their whole lives, in their hearts, in their inner being. It's not that Paul is praying that they will receive Jesus into their hearts, for he is writing to people who are Christians who have already received Christ into their hearts. But he's praying that these Christians will continue to see Jesus as Lord and Master and Sovereign Ruler over all that they are. Uh, the word dwell that you see there in verse 17 is not talking about a, a temporary dwelling, but it's talking about a permanent residence. Paul is praying that these Christians around Ephesus will see by faith that Jesus is the king who permanently dwells in their hearts so that they might be changed in their inner person. Uh, you know, many people book temporary accommodation these days, don't they? Uh, I recently booked a, a place with Airbnb uh, for my next holiday. But uh, when you check into an Airbnb place, uh, what happens? Well, you try to... Uh, make as, as, as uh, little disturbance to the place as possible, don't you? Uh, you, you live out of your travel bags. Uh, you try to, not to move around the furniture too much. And uh, you try to leave the place uh, exactly as you found it. Is that right? But it's different when you move into a home permanently, isn't it? You know, if you move in permanently, you start to make changes to the place. You scrape the old paint off the walls and you give it a fresh coat of paint. You rip up the old carpets and you put in new carpets. You get rid of the old furniture and bring in fresh furniture. What Paul prays here is that God will so powerfully be at work in the Ephesian Christians that the Christ who dwells permanently in their hearts will do this kind of radical change in the hearts of these people. He's praying that the dingy and dark paint of the fear of death will give way to the bright colours of hope and eternal life. He's praying that the filthy carpet stained by years of immorality will be ripped up 
and replaced with purity. He's praying that the old furniture of selfishness and greed and living for myself will be replaced by the new furniture of love and generosity and serving other people as Christ has served us. Do you see Jesus by faith as king of your heart? Has there been this kind of radical change in your thinking and in your feeling and in your desires and in your goals for life because Jesus has become king of your heart? Because if there has been, then praise God, for Paul says, that is the power of God at work in you. Well, uh, we've seen Paul praying that God will powerfully be at work in the Christians around Ephesus uh, by helping them to see Christ as king in their hearts. But finally, he goes on to pray that God will give these Christians the power to comprehend his love for them. Uh, now, you'll notice that in Paul's mind, God's love is the soil and foundation for all genuine Christian living and growth. Uh, in verse 17, you'll see there that he uses the image of a tree that is firmly rooted in the soil. Uh, in the same verse, he switches metaphor with the image of a building that is firmly grounded on good foundations. Uh, what Paul is saying is that the good soil in which the Christian will grow and the solid foundation upon which the, the Christian will be built up is none other than the love of God. But friends, I want you to see that Paul goes on uh, to pray that uh, God will give these Christians the power to grow in their comprehension of God's love uh, all the more in their lives. Uh, for he prays in verse 18 that they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love for them. But if you look carefully at verse 18, you will notice that comprehending God's love is not a solo or individual activity, is it? For Paul speaks about comprehending God's love together with all the saints. You see, the kind of comprehension that Paul is talking about here is done in community with other Christian people as you meet with them, with the Bible open, as you learn from each other so that you appreciate the love of God all the more. Now, that's why the person who tries to go solo in their Christian lives usually never grows in Christian maturity in any real sense. But the thing I love about this prayer is that Paul speaks about the four dimensions of God's love for these Christians around Ephesus. Uh, he speaks, notice, about the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love. And I, I think you can see these uh, four dimensions in the sort of things that Paul has already been saying up to this point in the letter. And so, for example, he speaks about the breadth of God's love, or how wide it is. Uh, where have we seen that? Well, you will remember that Paul has already, already spoken about how wide God's love is because it is a love that embraces anyone who turns to Christ. 
It embraces the Jew as well as the Gentile. Indeed, it embraces the whole world and the nations of the world, which is great news because it means that no one is beyond the reach of God's love. Or how about the length of God's love? Uh, We've already seen, haven't we, that God's love began in eternity past when God predestined his people for adoption as sons. But it continues into the future as well, doesn't it? As we will enjoy the wonder of God's heavenly inheritance for all eternity. Many of us will know what it's like to be let down by people who have promised to love us and yet over time have gone back on those promises. But what God says here is that the length of his love knows no end. It is from eternity to eternity. Or how about the height of God's love? Well, again, if you've been with us for a few weeks now, you'll know that uh, Paul has already spoken of how uh, God's love has reached down to those who were once spiritually dead in their sins and trespasses, and he has uh, made them alive, and he has seated them with Christ in the heavenly places. Here is a love that takes us straight from the depths of hell to the heights of heaven. You cannot get a higher love than this. Or finally, how about the depth of God's love? Well, Paul has been speaking about the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, hasn't he? You see, God's love is so deep that he did not spare his very own son, who he sent into the world to die on the cross for your sin, for your rebellion and my rebellion against God in the way that we have lived so that we who put our faith and trust in him is promised forgiveness and reconciliation with God and with others in his family. Why God would save us in this particular way is a deep mystery that we do not know. That he has saved us in this way is a cause for deep wonder and rejoicing. Now, friends, if you are here this morning and you know that in your heart you have not been living with God as your king, if you know that you've been living a life ignoring the God who created you, uh, rejecting his word, running away from him, then I want you to see this morning just the enormity of the depth of God's love for you. It is shown most clearly in the death of his son on the cross for your sin and for my sin. And so will you let his love draw you to himself this morning? Draw you to Jesus? Will you receive Christ and receive him as your Lord and Saviour so that you will be forgiven and reconciled to God? There is no bigger love that you can know in this world than the love of God that was demonstrated on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. But of course, we will never be able to understand the love of God in Christ Jesus in an exhaustive way, will we? Now that's why Paul prays in verse 19 
that the Christians around Ephesus will know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It's almost a paradox, isn't it? Paul wants them to know something that is beyond knowing. I think what Paul is saying here is that although God's love shown in the depth in the death of Jesus is so deep that we cannot know everything about it. Nevertheless, he is saying that God's power is displayed as we grow in knowing the depths of His love. Uh, some of you may have been down to uh, have been uh, down to the infield swimming pools, uh, which is near. Um, our other church uh, at the Enfield end of our parish. But uh, the Olympic pool there has a really deep end. Uh, I think many years ago they must have had a a 10-metre diving board or something uh, for the pool to be that deep. But uh, one of my great joys as a parent is seeing my children uh, splash into the deep end of the pool, uh, jump in and kind of uh, splash around in the the deep end. You know, each time they they jump in, uh, what they really want to do is they want to dive down and touch the bottom. But uh, after going down about a metre, they come back up and uh, they realise they can't do it. Uh, There's a well-known saying that says that God's love is shallow enough for a child to wade in, but deep enough for an elephant to swim in. Uh, That's a bit like what Paul is saying here, isn't it? God's love is so wide and so long and so high and so deep that you cannot reach the ends of his love. And yet he prays that God will continue to be at work in these Christian people around Ephesus. That they would comprehend more and more of his love. That they might be filled with the Lord Jesus Christ and grow to be more like him. Well, friends, what does it look like when God has powerfully been at work in a person's life? It's an important question, I think, because in contemporary Christian circles, there are many sham answers to that question. Some say that if God has powerfully been at work in your life, then you will become rich and healthy and wise. Others say that if God has been at work in your life, then you'll be able to do amazing signs and wonders that everyone will be amazed at. Still others say that if God has been at work in your life, then you will live a life of ease because God will just take care of all the problems in your life. But what God says, friends, in the Bible this morning is that when he powerfully gets to work in your life and in my life, what happens is that Christ becomes king of our hearts. He rules us in such a way that we are changed from the inside out and he helps us to comprehend more and more just how much God has loved us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is this the kind of powerful work that God is doing in your life? Is this the kind of thing that you desire most for yourself and for others in your life? Are these the kind of things that drive us so that we will pray for these sort of things, not only for ourselves, but like the Apostle Paul, for others around us as well? Uh, I want to finish up this morning by reading you something I found very challenging 
uh, in uh, a book I was reading this week. Uh, listen to what the, the author says about uh, this particular passage. He says, Notice how Paul prays for such big things to be accomplished in his readers' lives. Our Heavenly Father is certainly concerned about the smallest details of our daily needs, but sometimes we use this as an excuse to childishly focus our prayers upon selfish or trivial things. In our Bible studies, we can easily read magnificent passages like this and then close the Bible just to pray about a weekend barbecue and the children's colds. If we could learn to pray not only for our daily needs, but also for God's big spiritual plans for other people, which are described in this passage, we would be more likely to witness God answering our prayers. The truth is that God cares much more about my son becoming a fit dwelling for the Lord Jesus Christ than about what score he gets in his science test. Brothers and sisters, let's pray for the big things uh, that God spe speaks about in this passage. Let's pray that, God, that Christ will rule our hearts and that we'll be strengthened to comprehend uh, with many others the length and breadth and height and depth of God's love for us. In fact, uh, why don't we do that now uh, as I close? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are not only a powerful God and able to do all things in immeasurably big ways, but that you are also our Father who desires good things for your children. We thank you especially this morning for your love for us, demonstrated so clearly in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ for us. We thank you that even while we were sinners and undeserving of your love, because of our ignorance and rebellion, living life our own way without you, uh, even though that was once the case, we thank you that you sent your son to die for our sins, that we might be forgiven and reconciled to you. And Father, we pray that you would help us to comprehend this great love more and more in our lives. Uh, we pray especially for those who do not yet know this love, that you would draw them to yourself this morning in such a way that they might trust in Jesus as the Lord and Saviour and King of their lives. But for all of us, we pray that you would give us the strength to comprehend more and more just how wide and long and high and deep is this love that you have for us and the world and that you would cause Christ to rule in our hearts that we might be a new and transformed people who live in a manner worthy of the gospel through which we have been saved. And we pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.